ask you this afternoon to take your Bibles and turn back to the first portion that we read from the Old Testament scriptures. We come in our exposition of the prophecy of Isaiah to chapters 20 and 21, and we'll be considering uh, these words together. It opens in, verse, uh, in chapter 20, verse 1, in the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, when Sargon, king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it. One thing that has been painfully clear, abundantly clear, in these recent chapters of Isaiah, and that is, though there are kings and kingdoms, big and small, that there is only one king who reigns over them all. Right? There is one king who is the king of kings and lord of lords, the only potentate the one who is the governor of the nations, the one who ultimately is Messiah, the prince, and he reigns over all the affairs of all the kingdoms of all of history. And we see it up close and personal in the accounts given to us here in the prophecy of Isaiah, the unfolding predictions and prophecies of the future of nations, the Lord's word that is brought to them. And we're reminded, aren't we, that in those unfolding events of prophecy, the word of God is always accompanying it. So that what God does matches what God says. And what God is doing is to be interpreted in light of what God has been saying in his word. And so we noted early on that it is important in our study of scripture, and we're reading the prophecies, to be looking at the historical narratives elsewhere in the Bible or reading the narratives. We need to be hearing what God is saying at the same time uh, through his prophets. And that's helpful in our study of the Old Testament scriptures, even the New Testament scriptures. But that principle continues, right? The Lord is still the one who is sovereign and controlling all things, governing all his creatures and, act, and all their actions by his providence. And his word continues to be the standard to which we look. It is his word, what he is saying in his word, that helps us to make sense of what he is doing in the unfolding events of, of history. And that's not just in terms of prophetic literature, which it certainly is, but within history uh, generally. And so here we come to chapter 20 and 21, and the Lord is circling back largely uh, to some of these people groups that he's already addressed in the prophecy of Isaiah. He's circling back and bringing his word again uh, to several of them, adding to what was said earlier or fleshing out, in other cases, what was said earlier. But you'll also notice as you're reading through both of these chapters, both 20 and 21, that there's something else emerging, isn't there? Uh, we have behind the text, of course, a man, a prophet, one who is sent by God, inspired by God, with a word from God. And yet we've, we've seen relatively little, heard very little, about the man himself, about the prophet Isaiah. We heard something about uh, him at the very beginning. We know he's married. We know the names of his two sons. We know the significance of that as his two sons stood with him as a testimony uh, in some of the prophecies that preceded this. We know about his experience in chapter 6 and the revolutionary influence that that had upon uh, his ministry. But in, in these two chapters where the Lord is coming to these four people groups and addressing them, 
he also weaves in something about the man himself, which is notable. Because Isaiah is coming with a very heavy word, uh, hard word. Many of the passages, chapters prior to this have been. He's coming with a word uh, regarding coming calamity, as our title of our sermon says. He's declaring, thus saith the Lord, calamity is coming. But Isaiah is not unaffected himself by these things. Indeed, he is, he is swept up into all that he is declaring in, a very, in various ways, as, as we'll note. The theme is coming calamity, and really, we have four points this evening, looking at these four different uh, uh, nations that are, that are addressed. In each of them, we have um, an element with regards to the calamity that's especially highlighted. And pulled together, the, the four of these give us the picture of a whole of what it means when God brings calamity to any people. So first of all, we begin with chapter 20, which we'll consider under the first point, verses 1 to 6. First of all, coming calamity involves humiliation. So chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, our first point is humiliation. It says, In the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, when Sargon, king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it. Ashdod is where? Children, can you remember? Ashdod is in Philistia. It's one of the Philistine cities. And we've heard something uh, with reference to them earlier in the earlier part of the was it chapter 14 or thereabouts where the Lord was, was speaking to them and foretelling of the, the judgment that would come, <clears throat> that they would um, <clears throat> be stamped out by the threat of, of Assyria. <clears throat> and that came, but then Philistia didn't stay there. They, they, they continued to um, seek to rebel. Three years later, in fact, they, they, they initiated a rebellion against Assyria, attempted a rebellion, I should say, and did so with an attempted alliance with Egypt and Ethiopia, which is why they too were brought into uh, this, this chapter, the three of them, all of which was soundly defeated. And so here the Lord is coming, and he's, he's speaking about what's going to come to, to Egypt and Ethiopia, as you see in the verses that follow. But he, he uses Isaiah himself to embody the message. So there's the word of God, <clears throat> but it's actually personified <clears throat> in what God calls Isaiah to do. And so he says, go loose the sackcloth from off thy loins and put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. Here is Isaiah already a living, visible testimony of humility. His clothing is sackcloth. He's already humbled in the dust under the word which he has received and proclaimed from God himself. And he has, if you will, clothed himself with humility, to borrow the language of, of the New Testament. And yet the Lord takes him further beyond that to utter humiliation. He tells him to take off his sackcloth from his loins and to put his shoes from off of his feet. 
And this is defined in terms of nakedness. You'll remember that in the Bible, uh, nakedness, the word nakedness, does not often mean stark naked. Right? It, it often doesn't mean that. You have many examples, Old and New Testament, where it means inadequate clothing for biblical modesty. In this case, he undoubtedly would have had a loincloth underneath that sackcloth, or possibly as, as, as well. But the, the language here is that of humiliation. In other words, this, this prophet doesn't have some sort of disinterested role to play in the proclamation that he's making against Egypt and Ethiopia. No, it costs him. It costs Isaiah personally. As I say, he personifies the message because he says, so shall the king of Assyria, verse 4, lead away the Egyptians, prisoners, the Ethiopians, captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. It's humiliation that is being underscored here. God calls Isaiah to do what is pricey, what costs him. Three years of embarrassment, three years of shame, three years personally of humiliation. God calls him to do that. Now, he's undoubtedly walking around Jerusalem, right? It's a message to God's people, as we'll see more in a moment, about what is going to happen to these, these countries. Something beneath his, his dignity, you know, whether or not I should say as an aside, verse 4, the description given there in verse 4 of the Egyptians and Ethiopians, the fuller description, uh, it's unclear as to whether that defines what, what um, Isaiah himself underwent. In other words, it may be that God said, take off your sackcloth, and he has undergarments on, and he's, his feet are, are, are unshoed, and naked in that sense as a testimony of what will be even greater nakedness, right? The buttocks uncovered and so on is described in verse 4. But whatever the case, right, it's beneath dignity. And yet Isaiah takes it up obediently, promptly, humbly. He does precisely what the Lord calls him to do. It's like singing in Psalm 84. It's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked to take the low place, whatever that is that God calls us to do in the service of him, right? Not to think too highly of ourselves, as Paul warns the Philippians. Isaiah submits, Isaiah yields, Isaiah obeys. And amidst cold and rain, for three years, he walks about as a living testimony to the humiliation that comes when God brings calamity. And so it's speaking of what will fall upon Egypt and Ethiopia or, or the Cushites. But this message in chapter 20 is not just for them. It's for Judah. Isaiah's testimony is for Judah and more specifically for King Hezekiah. It's a word in season to him. Hezekiah is familiar with Isaiah, right? They would have been colleagues, friends on speaking terms. We'll discover more of that later when we get into the 
chapter, later chapters of 30s, in the 30s of Isaiah. But he sees the prophet, God's man, in this condition. It's a word to, to Hezekiah. Because Hezekiah and Judah generally are very tempted with all of the threats of Assyria and all the risk and all the vulnerability and all that could happen to them. They're extremely tempted. Hezekiah is tempted to turn to Egypt and to turn to Ethiopia and to say, here's our deliverance, here's our help, here's, here are those who will come into alliance and confederacy with us and enable us to beat back Assyria. That's what he's entertaining, to go to Assyria for help. And the Lord is bringing a message to Hezekiah and to Jude generally and saying, there is no point. Right? Verse 6. The inhabitant of this isle shall say in that day, behold, such is our expectation, whether we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? The Lord is saying, don't do it. Do not entertain this sort of compromise, confederation with, my, with God's enemies in order to fight off a third enemy. He says there is absolutely no point in this. Ethiopia and Assyria will be worthless by way of support to you. Well, where should their support come from then? What are the implications? Where should they be placing their trust then? And the answer is clearly in Jehovah. To put your trust in anything, anywhere, anyone, anytime, other than Jehovah, is utter foolishness. And the Lord is making that abundantly clear. You think of what we sing in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. Let the King hear us when we call. For the believer individually and for the church collectively. All of our trust and confidence is to be in the Lord and in nothing else. You say, well, sure, we can all affirm that and know that. But you think of all of the subtle ways, the temptations that come to rely on the arm of flesh, to rely on connections or the counsel of other people or your own health or strength or your own ideas of how to wiggle your way out of certain sticky and difficult circumstances. You think of all of the ways in which the church at large relies upon worldly means in order to accomplish spiritual ends. And the Lord is coming and saying, this is pointless. Because the Lord brings in his wake calamity upon all such things. And that calamity brings with it utter humiliation. And so we're hemmed in then. Our focus is to be entrusting upon the Lord. But you'll also notice, by way of application, Isaiah's enduring protest. There's something in the midst of all this humiliation. There's something heroic. There's something remarkable. Because here is, here is Isaiah. And amidst all the, all the, the talk and all the temptations about turning to Egypt, turning to the Cushites, you know, for help, all of the, all of the fear-mongering about the coming of, of Assyria and so on and so forth, Isaiah maintained 
He raised a testimony and he maintained it persistently. And he wouldn't be drowned out so that walking the streets, everyone would see him. Everyone couldn't help but see God's man, God's prophet, bearing God's word, bringing the message of coming humiliation. There's something beautiful about that. The willingness of God's people or the church generally to keep the torch lit, to raise the standard, the banner, and to unfurl it and to refuse to pocket it, to raise it and maintain it amidst everything else in obedience and submission to the Lord. That's a word in season for us as well. It's a word in season. We should thus saith the Lord in all these circumstances. So the first mark of coming calamity is humiliation. The second is downfall. Secondly, downfall. Here we have chapter 21, verses 1 to 10. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 10. Notice Babylon, verse 9. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. For those among God's people at the time of Isaiah, Babylon would have been as far away as the moon is for us. Right? Babylon was not close proximity. It's not Philistia. It's not Egypt. It's, it's not you know, Syria and so on and so forth. Far, 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 far away. And we've heard something about Babylon already in chapters 13 and 14. You'll remember Babylon is the place of supreme glory in the history of the whole world, right? God described it in Daniel's vision as the golden head. Or to go back to chapter 13, you'll remember in verse 19, and Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is glorious, prestigious, prideful, fabulous, fantastic, empire. And yet the Lord is describing its downfall, that when calamity comes, downfall is what happens. So you have Assyria is raised up as a superpower, and they're squashing everybody. And then the Lord raises up Babylon, and Babylon squashes Assyria and casts it into the dustbin of history. Babylon is glorious and all-powerful. And then the Lord raises up the Medes, and they come and squash Babylon, Medes and the Persians, defeat them, and leave them empty and, and broken. And that's what we have described here. So in chapter 21, these first 10 verses, you'll notice it's, it's, it's a word to, to Babylon, that's Babylon that's being addressed. In verse 2, a grievous vision is declared unto me, the treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, and the spoiler spoileth. Go up, O Elam, right, which is connected with the Persians. Besiege, O Media, this is the Medes. All the sign thereof have I made uh, to cease. And so we have the conquest of, of Babylon here. And this, of course, the Medes capture them in 539 uh, B.C., and it happens in the midst of all of their pride. You know, they, they, in verse 5, prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, drink, arise, ye princes, anoint the shield, and so on. They're, they're fat, 
they're, they're feasting, they're, they're happy. And, and, and here the Lord tells his prophet, the Lord says in verse 6 and following, he says, I want you to put a, watch, a watchman on the towers of Jerusalem. I want you to put up a watchman on the towers. And I want you to look for, wait for, watch for word to be brought. Word regarding the fall of Babylon. Now, all of this is recounted for us in Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 5, we actually see the unfolding fulfillment of, of these things. You'll remember, children, there's Belshazzar. Belshazzar is rich and, you know, so on and so forth. Arrogant, incredibly arrogant, and blasphemous. Right? He has this huge feast and he's, he calls for God's stuff. The utensils taken from the wor place of worship, the house of God, the temple of God to be brought in, that they might use them for these common purposes and so on and so forth. And so they're carrying on and the Lord drops his hammer, as it were, out of nowhere. Even while they're feasting, there's a siege that's taking place. And if you read in chapter 5, verse 27, Thou art weighed in the balances, and art found wanting. The kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So here, and then later on, that's, that night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. So the Lord brings the fulfillment of what we see described uh, in this passage, Babylon's fall. Right? This is one of the most notable, one of the most significant events in all of human history. The fall of Babylon. You say, well, how's that? I mean, there's a lot of stuff. The Ottoman Empire fell in the you know, 1920s, and we've got all sorts of other things we could talk about, you know, the unwinding of the Byzantine Empire and so on. The Bible defines it as significant. The fall of Babylon is hugely significant in terms of redemptive history the, because it was, it, was, it was a picture of the, the overthrow of ultimate evil for God's people, the threat of God's people. And so you get in verse 9, and behold, here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. He answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. All the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. Right? So significant that this is the language that God determines to use as we saw Wednesday night in our sequential reading through the New Testament in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Right? Quoted again in chapter 18, Revelation 18 and verse 2. This language is adopted for spiritual Babylon, for the great whore, right? Spiritual Babylon is depicted in, in the apocalypse of, of John in this language taken from Isaiah chapter 21 and, and verse 9. And here with Babylon, it's as in a moment. And there in the book of Revelation, spiritual Babylon, likewise, it's as if it's in a moment that it takes place. Meantime, Judah itself is suffering. 
right? He refers to his people in verse 10, O my threshing and the corn of my floor, that which I have heard of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared unto you. This is Isaiah saying, notice my threshing, right? These are my people that are, are being threshed, ground as it were, in, in the mill. This has an effect on Isaiah. So if you go back, I passed over it on purpose. Verses 3 and 4, here's the description of, of Isaiah. Therefore are my loins filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold upon me, as the pangs of a woman that travaileth. I was bowed down at the hearing of it. I was dismayed at the seeing of it. My heart panted, fearfulness affrighted me. The night of my pleasure hath he turned unto fear, unto me. Isaiah is wrecked. This, this demonstrates that Isaiah actually, obviously, believes the message he's preaching. And not only does he believe it, he's been brought under its power himself. And the overwhelming thought of all oh, that's going to happen to Babylon, what's going to happen to Judah in the, in the midst of all of that as well, it overwhelms him. He's affected. I think too often for many of the Lord's people, you think of robots, or you think of prophets like robots. You know, here are these men, and they're sent out, and they say, thus saith the Lord, and they did this, and they did that, and so on and so forth, as if they were robots. He's a man. He is affected by the word that he himself is preaching. He himself is brought under it. He is made to quake. He's in pain physical pain. He's racked mentally and physically. He's filled with fear. All of his pleasure evaporates as a consequence of these things. Is this a reminiscent of anything? Reminiscent of anyone you can think of? We read from Matthew 23. There you see coming calamity as well. A series of pronouncements of woes against the scribes and Pharisees who are hypocrites. And with it, a series of woes against the house of God, against Jerusalem, against Israel. All the blood is going to be held to your account, he tells them. You've slaughtered my men. You've slaughtered my prophets. And you're going to do yet more. You're going to chase them down. You're going to scourge them in your synagogues. You're going to crucify them. You're going to stone them. You're going to hunt them everywhere you can find my people. And all the blood from righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias slain is going to be visited upon you. A heavy word, coming calamity. And how is Jesus affected? The end of the chapter. There's the Messiah. There's our Lord. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Thou that slayest the prophets. Here is the Lord himself affected under the word that he is proclaiming. And he's saying, How I would have gathered you. I would have gathered you. I would have brought you. Like, like a, a chicken brings her, her little chicks under his wings, under her wings. And ye would not. Well, you've heard sermons on that text, and it stands alone 
in terms of the revelation of the heart of Christ and the glory of Christ in it. But you see it there, don't you? It's a parallel. You get the same thing with the Apostle. The Apostle Paul It comes out in a variety of places. One that's hit me quite powerfully. You'll remember when we were, you'll remember the text when we were going through it in, in Romans chapter 9. Where Paul says in, in verse 1, or verse 2, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Isaiah is such a man. Isaiah is affected by the things that he is speaking. Now, this is true of gospel ministers. It must be true of faithful gospel ministers who themselves are brought under the power of the truths that they themselves preach. But we can't limit it there either. That's the obvious application and, and very savory and helpful. But what about the word that fathers speak to children, mothers speak to children, words that you speak to your fellow Christians, words that you speak to the unconverted in the workplace and across the back fence and so on, words that you speak to people on the street, so easy at times to mouth the words and to spit out, thus saith the Lord, at this person and that, without being affected yourself by the very truths you're speaking. Well, that's a word in season for all of us. So, coming calamity brings downfall, secondly. Thirdly, coming calamity brings darkness. Verses 11 and 12. The burden of Duma, he calleth to me out of Seir, Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, The morning cometh, and also the night. If ye will inquire, inquire ye. Return, come. This is a word to Edom, which we've also heard about uh, previously. Right? Seir is Mount Seir. It's the place, the high, one of the high parts of the mountains in, in, in Edom. And you'll remember children like the west side. Remember our geography lesson? Uh, excuse me, on the east side of the Jordan, you have the acronym SAME, S-A-M-E, so E for Edom, the Edomites, they're way down in the southwest of, of, of Israel. And you'll remember that the Edomites are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. And indeed, the Lord has a great deal to say about the Edomites, days of Moses, and, and throughout the prophets. In fact, the whole prophecy of Obadiah, which is very brief, is directed to the Edomites. And Amos is a contemporary of Isaiah in the early part of Isaiah's ministry. Amos is primarily serving in the northern kingdom while Isaiah is in the south. And in Amos, Amos is actually from the south, but he's ministering in the north. And in the opening chapter of Amos chapter 1, he, there's a word about the Edomites there too, for example. He's speaking about how the Edomites have abused and, and uh, been destructive to, to, to the Lord's people. And so you have these two words, just a brief word to, to the Edomites. He speaks of the burden of Duma. Duma actually means silent. So here are those, the Edomites, who have evil treated God's people. They're going to be made silent. 
Now, if you were to ask me, where's the most silent place? You think, well, in the closet. Children, you might think, just, well, if you go in the closet, if you go downstairs, you know, there's spots or in the attic or out in the woods. Think harder. Where's the most silent place? The grave. We use that language, don't we? Silent is a grave. Utter silence. He's saying to the Edomites, you're going to be made silent. It's in essence telling them you're going to the realm of the dead. And so the watchman, you know, the watchman is asked, what of the night? What of the night? There's darkness and all that comes with it and the fears and terrors and destruction and so on and so forth. What of it? What of it? What of it? Is there any relenting? Is there any, is there any, uh, any hope for us? Any, any relief from, from all of this? The watchman himself is longing for the morning, longing for light to come. He longs for the morning and discovers that it is dark as night. Right? He says, the morning cometh and also the night. It's as if the morning itself is made like the night. And so it's a heavy word. In the wake of coming calamity is, is darkness. But you'll notice here a word given to these sons of Esau at the end. If ye will inquire... Inquire ye, return, come. In the midst of this darkness, there is a call for repentance, which is a call actually to come to the Lord, come to the light itself. Edom is being directed on the way back to Jehovah, on the way back to God. Edom is being called to turn from their darkness, to turn from their sin. Inquire, ask, just ask, what must I do to be saved? Ask the question. You remember the answer given to the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And thy, thy household. And so it's describing the way back to God. Right? He's, they're being called to turn. And to return. Right, The most common Old Testament language for repentance to return and to come, to come to Jehovah, to submit to his, his reign, to, to receive his word, to believe him, to come under his appointed king in Jerusalem and to pledge one's allegiance to him and to indeed the one who is the coming king, the great son of David and so on. It's a call to repentance. And yet, like with Matthew 23, they would not. And like with many others, Many others since then and to the present hour, many, many, many will do anything but repent. Is that you this afternoon? You will go here and go there. You'll hear this and hear that. You'll say this and say that. You'll do many things, but there's one thing you will not do. You will not repent. You can talk about others. You can talk about circumstances. You can talk about all sorts of extenuating issues in your life and so on, but you will not repent. The Edomites would rather keep their sin and misery than to return 
and come to the Lord. Woe be heaped upon woe for those who will say much, talk much, but who refuse to repent. Inquire ye, the Lord says, return, come. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ himself with gospel evangelical repentance on his terms, turning from sin to Christ with hope for mercy. So there's darkness. But the coming calamity also brings fourthly and lastly a position of being helpless. So fourthly, helpless, verses 13 to the end. Here we have a word given to Arabia, the burden upon Arabia in the forest. In Arabia shall ye lodge, O ye traveling companions of Dedanim. Arabia, right? This is a reference to what we think of as kind of deep Persian Gulf territory. This would be, you know, the Arabian Peninsula, as we call it. This would be Saudi and some of the other countries that are that are around it. And that portion of the world was inhabited then and now by descendants of Abraham through Hagar and Keturah, two of his, his other wives or concubines, Hagar and Keturah, right? So you had descending from them the Ishmaelites, which we're familiar with, and the Midianites, for example. You think of in the days of, of Solomon, the queen of Sheba came from the Arabian Peninsula, maybe Yemen. Um, so the queen of Sheba appears on the scene. She comes during the reign of Solomon to inquire of his wisdom and is affected by it. As you know, Jesus uses it as an example. There is one greater than Solomon that is here, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the queen of Sheba will come all the way all that distance from the east in order to hear Solomon, and yet there are many who will not come to hear one greater than Solomon in the person of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the, the Arabians were known for, their, for being traders, and so they had their caravans, and they were bringing then and now, you know, things like frankincense and spices and all sorts of other things that are still valuable, precious metals, and so on. Now it's, of course, what they call liquid gold, oil, and other things. But they're, they're traders. They're cara they have their caravans. And, and you see the description, O ye traveling companions of Dedanim, inhabitants of the land of Tima, brought water to him that was thirsty. It, goes, it says, For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, from the grievous war. For thus hath the Lord said unto me. And then he de describes the, the fact that they're given a year. So the point is that they're, they're being disrupted. They're having to lean, uh, they're having to leave rather the, the trade routes that have all been well established, these main routes. They're having to leave those main routes. They're fleeing for fear of their lives. And all of their arsenal with bows and so on are of no match with, uh, for Assyria is coming and so on. The Lord says that this is going to come speedily, verse 16, within a year, according to the years of a hireling, and all the glory of Kedar shall fail. Here are a people that are absolutely helpless. And why are they helpless? 
The end of the chapter, verse 17, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. Their helplessness is a result of the fact that God has spoken. All God has to do is speak and it is done. The Lord speaks his pronouncement of judgment and it comes. And all of the strength and glory and riches, whatever else is established, all of the networking and whatever else fails. Left absolutely helpless. Because God has spoken. And so both Sargon and Sennacherib, you may recall, boasted of defeating the Arabian tribes. So whether it was fulfilled in one or the other, this particular passage is unclear, but it was certainly fulfilled, indeed fulfilled at least twice, the defeat of the Arabian tribes. And so they're left absolutely helpless. Coming, coming calamity, when the Lord brings it, results in helplessness. It was true as well for Jerusalem, wasn't it? When the Lord pronounced those woes upon his people and he foretold of all that would come when the chariot wheels of Rome would roll in in 70 AD and obliterate Jerusalem. Some of the most horrific stories ever read. You can read them in Josephus and elsewhere of all that took place there when the Lord dropped his hammer on his own people on that occasion, and they have not recovered since. But one thing I want to bring out here at the end, especially in thinking about the coming calamity, these various characteristics that come with it, it, it pushes to the fore of our minds this. The only blessing for the world, the only blessing for nations and people groups and tribes the only blessing for the world is through the blessing of the church. Outside of the church, there is no ordinary means of salvation, as all the Reformed confessions say. The church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in this fallen world. It is the light set upon a hill. It is the great mountain to which men must come. It is all of that and, and much more. Only blessing for the world is through the blessing of the church. And so as Isaiah is bringing his word of prophecy, and there's all of this calamity with all these surrounding nations that is, is coming down the pike for them, it's a word of rebuke to his own people. And it continues to sit on us as the church today. If the church is cold, if the church is careless, if the church is unbelieving, if the church is disobedient, if the church is compromising in capitulation with the world, if the church is full of idolatry, if the church is all of these things and more, what are the consequences for the world at large? Right? It, it should arouse us. Right? This is why the New Testament says judgment must begin at the house of the Lord. Judgment has to begin at the house of the Lord. And there has to be repentance among God's people. There has to be reformation among God's people. There has to be reviving among God's people in order that through the church, the nations and the world at large might receive blessing. Right? We, we actually, and I wasn't thinking about it at the time, we actually sang this 
when we sang a few moments ago from Psalm 67. Because we open in that psalm by saying, Lord, bless us. Cause thy grace to abound upon us, Zion, the church, in order that the nations might receive grace and might themselves be brought to praise and adore our God. It's that same pattern. And so it underlines for us, doesn't it? The necessity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ being humble and holy and watchful and prayerful and diligent and holding fast the truth and walking in the fear of God and seeking his glory and seeking first his kingdom and so on and so forth. It underlines how essential that is, not only for ourselves, but for the whole world at large. And through that, for the glory, honor, and glory of the only King, worth knowing and worth naming, the great King, Christ himself, who's the only head and King of his own church. Let's stand together for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, give us help from heaven. Grant, O Lord, that we too might enter in, be swept up into the words which we read and hear and preach and hear preached. Grant, Lord, that we would know something of the power of these truths in our own hearts. Furnish us with wisdom and light. Give us, O Lord, that we might indeed be recipients of abundant grace and blessings that through the church the nations might be made glad in that gospel grace. O Lord, help us, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.